On today's podcast, perhaps for the first time in audio history, I will teach you how to juggle three balls. But before I can do that, I need to teach you how to ride a bicycle. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. But first, here's a message from our featured nonprofit, The Innocence Project. Find out more at innocenceproject.org. The mission of the Innocence Project is to free wrongly convicted people through DNA testing and reform the system responsible for their unjust imprisonment anywhere in the world. Martin Luther King said, an injustice anywhere is an injustice everywhere. So many things in our lives aren't taught properly. They're taught with a mixture of status as an inducement, shame as a threat if we don't opt in, and fear, the fear of getting hurt, the fear of doing it wrong, a fear to overcome. So when we think about learning to ride a bike, it's a fraught exercise. Little kid wants to ride a bike because big brother and big sister have a bike because having a bike represents freedom and a rite of passage and a form of growing up. But it's also filled with fear, the fear that you will fall and hurt yourself. Parents also are afraid, afraid they won't teach the kid properly, afraid the kid will fall and break his wrist, afraid that they're bad parents and will be unable to teach their kid how to ride a bike. Their kid will be ostracized and never recover. Enter the Strider bike. Two million bikes later, the Strider company has figured out how to teach kids to ride a bike. And they do it by not teaching kids to ride a bike. They do it by teaching kids to balance. Because, of course, training wheels are foolish. Training wheels sort of make it look like you're riding a bike, but the hardest part of riding a bike isn't pedaling. The hardest part of riding a bike is learning to balance. Once you learn to balance, once you get over that fear, the rest of riding a bike is pretty easy. So you buy your two-year-old or your three-year-old or a four-year-old a Strider, and it's a bike with no pedals, a little tiny bike, a real bike, a bike without training wheels, a bike that isn't technically a bike because it doesn't have any pedals. And you just give it to the kid, and you encourage them, but you don't yell at them. And it's not fraught with risk and fear because they're hardly moving, and their feet can touch the ground. And so, step, 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 they move a few feet. Then they move a few more feet. Then maybe they coast for a minute or two, put their feet back down and start over. We have taught them to ride a bike without teaching them to ride a bike. We haven't used status as a threat, shame. We haven't had to deal with fear. Because stepwise, incrementally, not learning to ride a bike is the best way to ride a bike. I promised you juggling. Here's the problem with juggling. The problem with juggling is people think juggling is about catching. If you watch people learn to juggle, they will do almost anything to not drop a ball because dropping a ball costs you status. They will lunge for each ball. Watch people watch a juggler and they will keep track of how often the juggler drops the ball. Jugglers aren't supposed to drop the ball. So the entire focus Learning to juggle, watching a juggler, is all about not making any mistakes. 
catch the ball. Well, that's the problem. Because juggling is not about catching, it's about throwing. If you throw well, the catches will take care of themselves. But if you are lunging all the time trying to catch, your throws will get worse. And inevitably, it will all end up on the ground. So the way to learn to juggle is pretty simple. One ball. Toss it from one hand to the other. Catch it in the other hand without moving. If you have to move to catch it, let the ball drop. Toss, naturally catch. Toss, naturally catch. Right hand to left, back and forth, until you can toss every time exactly the same way. Now, left hand to right. Repeat the process. There's going to be a lot of dropping. Dropping is fine. We're not doing it so we can catch. We're doing it so we can learn to throw. Once you've got this, once you've got this, so you can go back and forth and back and forth with the ball coming to eye level and then always landing right in your hand with no effort, now you're allowed to add a second ball. With the second ball, we've got one ball in each hand. Throw, throw, catch, catch. Throw, throw, catch, catch. If you're having to lunge for the ball, don't catch. Go back to throw, throw. Drop, drop. No catching. Throw, throw, drop, drop, no catching. Over time, throw, throw, catch, catch isn't going to be very difficult for you. It's going to be natural. The reason it's natural is because we bypassed the status and we bypassed the fear, and all we did was teach you to toss. Throw, throw, catch, catch. You can probably guess the next step. The next step is to add one more ball and to go, Throw, 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 and let them all drop. Throw, 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 and let them all drop. All we're doing is throwing the ball. Two from the right hand, one from the left. Throw, 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 and let them drop. And after a while, when this is natural, you can go throw, throw, catch. Catch, throw, catch, throw, catch, throw. And now you know how to juggle because you learned how to throw. But too often, we get hung up on how it's supposed to be as opposed to what works to get us there. Particularly in the wake of a recent World Cup, lots of people asked why Brazil has created so many fantastic soccer players. Part of it's the culture, of course. Part of it's the poverty. Part of it's the intersection of the culture and the poverty. But a big piece of it is that about 100 years ago, a second form of soccer started to be played in Brazil, particularly in the favelas, the slums in each of the cities. This form of soccer takes place on a much smaller field. It's called soccer of the room. And soccer of the room uses a ball that doesn't bounce. Half as many players on a team. What happens is kids, five-year-olds, don't worry about the big field. They don't worry about the big net. They don't worry about having to think in their head about spreading out and playing a position. Kids are bad at all of that. Instead, they play in this little room on this little field with a small group of people handling the ball, learning the intricacies of passing and receiving. They're playing a different game. And bit by bit, some of them get into this other game. Some of them become good at it. And based on those core skills, they're able to easily move into the other game. 
They're not playing adult soccer when they're five years old. They're doing something else, something that opens the door for them to do what they sought to do. Same thing's true for basketball in the United States. It's absurd that we say to a bunch of seven-year-olds, here's a full-size basketball. Here, 10 feet high, there's the net. Why exactly are we asking a seven-year-old to throw the ball farther than they can? What are we teaching them? We're not teaching them to play basketball. We're teaching them about status, about pretending they're playing basketball, as opposed to focusing on what's it for and who's it for. Design thinking. This sport you're about to get engaged in, are you going to be good at it because you're two inches taller than the other seven-year-olds? Because if that's what we're going to do, we're going to teach you to be a narcissistic center, somebody who's only good at it because you're a little bit taller than everybody else. The alternative is to realize that what we're actually trying to teach is a form of proprioception, ball awareness, teamwork, planning, working together. We can do all of that without having a 10-foot-tall net. We can do all of that if we can help you feel mastery, if we can get past the idea that you have to be a junior version of the one you see on television. One last sports riff. I'm not good at sports riffs. Tennis. There may be 10 or 15 million active tennis players in the United States, and almost all of them are not very good. Many of them are young. A lot of them are over 35 years old. I was walking past some people playing tennis the other day, and one pointed out to the other what a miracle it was that they held their serve. Well, in professional tennis, you always hold your serve. If you don't, you're going to lose the entire match. But in amateur tennis, the tennis that's played by most people, holding your serve is hard because serving is ridiculous. That what you're trained to do, when you really can't handle it, when you're only six years old, is throw the ball way up above your head and then come down on it hard and throw it way across the net. A really difficult thing to do. And you're probably going to be bad at it. And not only are you going to be bad at it, but even if you're pretty good at it, it's not going to work very well because you're only four feet tall. What we ought to do is say to people who are learning to play tennis, you don't have to serve. You don't have to serve for two years. Maybe we also ought to say to them, you don't have to keep score because that's not what we're here to teach you how to do. We're not trying to teach you to play like Bobby Riggs. We're trying to teach you how to find your way on the court, how to play an infinite game with the person across the court, how to find pleasure in engaging with that person as they find pleasure in engaging with you. And yeah, after you're 30 years old, we ought to do the same thing with the serve. Unless you're in the club championship, don't bother. What's it for? Why exactly are you sitting over there pretending that you're Rod Laver? You're not Rod Laver. It's not fun for you. You're not good at it. It's not supposed to be a penalty. Let the status go. That as we think about the work that we want to do in whatever field it is, as soon as we can let the status go and think about what the work is for, then we can find the building blocks. We can focus on the important things that are also difficult. Those important things that are difficult are different than the parts that we think of as important when we're watching from the outside. 
How then to become a successful novelist? Well, the traditional method is to write a novel. Then work very hard to find an agent. Have your agent work very hard to find a publisher. Go to cocktail parties. Dumb down, average out your book to make it easier to get it published. Work hard to make sure that after it's published, it gets reviewed by famous people. Read every one of your reviews on Amazon and agonize about the ones that aren't spectacular. Then worry about selling the movie rights, and on and on and on. That's about status and fear. The alternative is to write. You don't have to write a novel, just write. Write your blog, write your dialogue, write your screenplay. Simply write. Write and then publish it to the world. Online, give it away, share it, spread it. Then do it again. Write poorly, then write some more. Throw, throw, write, write. Keep writing. Figure out how to stand up in front of a group of five people and tell a story. Don't read a story, tell a story. Get good at telling stories. Get good at holding people's attention wrapped as you work your way through a monologue that they want to hear again. Tell more stories. Write more. Share more. Then one day, an agent calls you. Then one day, a publisher decides she can't live without you. And then your book comes out, but you don't pay attention to that because you're too busy writing and then writing some more. Or how does one become an entrepreneur? Well, one model is that model that you come up with the unique original idea and then you write the perfect business plan and somehow have lunch with that titan of the universe, that guy in California who's going to write you a check for $5 million. Now you have investors, then you need a board and accountants, and lawyers, and then you start building the product and hiring engineers and getting press releases and getting on the cover of a magazine. Or you solve a problem for someone and get paid for it. Or you just solve a problem for someone, and then you solve another problem, and then you get paid for it. And you solve one little problem after another. And then you go on a sales call and it doesn't work, and then you go on another sales call and it doesn't work. And then you go on a sales call and it does work because you're learning to see and hear. You're learning to tell a story that people want to hear. And then you do it again. And then you do it again. You're showing up. You're creating. You're contributing. You're producing value. Do this enough times and you start to see the world differently. Do this enough times and the fear goes away. It doesn't go away because you're suddenly brave. It goes away because you understand. Because now you can see it. Because now, magically, you've gotten good at it. Throw, throw, catch, catch. It's about throwing. It's not about catching. In a minute, I'll answer a question that came in last week. But first, here's a message from our featured nonprofit, The Innocence Project. Find out more at innocenceproject.org. Mr. Sheck, I'm confident that whenever the DNA test is done, it will show my innocence and this miscarriage of justice. You are the best of the best when it comes to DNA evidence. This is pretty much known throughout the country, and I desperately need your help. Greetings. I'm James Harden, Jr. I'm writing you this letter in sincere hope that you could be able to help me and my brother 
Jonathan Barr regained our freedom. My name is Jonathan Barr, and I was wrongfully convicted of a murder and a rape of my friend, Catrice Matthews, and I spent almost 20 years in prison for that crime. I spent 15 years inside of prison. I spent 11 years and three months in prison. 20 years, nine months, five days in prison for a crime I didn't commit. Uh, the system failed us. Hey Seth, it's Maria. Hey Seth, my name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Steven out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi Seth, Alicia from Charleston here. Hi Seth, this is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi Seth, warm greetings from Curacao. Hey Seth, my name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey Seth, this is Rex. Hey Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Summer's here, so we haven't gotten as many questions from you. We'd love to hear from you. Visit akimbo.link and press the appropriate button. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K. And here's an answer to a question that came in during a Q&A I ran in the marketing seminar. So we got time for a couple more questions here. Can we talk to Angie Flynn McIver? Did I say that right? Yeah, it's actually McKeever. But oh, McKeever. Okay, it's not like the TV show. Hi. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I'm. I'm interested in this idea of being generous. I love that, and that's. I'm finding that uh, exciting and inspiring. At the same time, as I'm thinking about the ways I want to be generous, I'm thinking about my funnel, and I feel like that the generous activities are also the funnel activities. So, is there a way to hold both of those things? at the same time, being genuinely generous, as well as knowing I'd love to funnel these people into paying work. Right, so it's really important, I'll say this as clearly as I can, generosity and discounts have nothing to do with each other, nothing. And if you are giving people a discount thinking you're being generous, you are not being generous. In fact, you might be just being cowardly or selfish. That what it means to be generous is to do emotional labor that is not ordinarily required on behalf of the person that you are serving. Discounts, if you want to do charity discounts, I love that. But particularly if you're selling in a business to business setting or you're selling to somebody who had no trouble making the mortgage last month, a price discount isn't going to make them happy. In fact, it might make them unhappy. Because now they're going to wonder how much more of a discount could they have gotten if they pushed even harder. What they want is to be seen, to be understood. They want someone who cares enough to take a beat. So if you talk to somebody and say, have you ever been to a doctor who was generous? Most people say, yeah. Have you ever had a school teacher who was generous? Yeah. Well, this doctor, what was she like that made her generous? They won't say, oh, she was really generous because she gave me a discount. They'll say she was generous because when I was sitting in her examination room, instead of running out the door, she took one extra minute to ask me about my daughter. She remembered my daughter. That was super generous. Or that teacher. The teacher, you didn't even pay the teacher. It's part of taxes. It's included. So what made that teacher generous? What made them generous is they didn't do the minimum. They did the maximum. They saw you for who you were. They saw you when you were afraid. They sat next to you when you were really upset about an essay, right? That's not a discount. That's the emotional labor of opening yourself up to their humanity. And so if you believe that the service you offer 
is worth more than it costs, and I hope you believe that, then having someone become your customer is actually quite generous because everything you sell is at a discount because you're selling it for less than it's worth. So there's nothing wrong with that. It's not selfish for a surgeon to say, I'm going to charge you to take your appendix out and keep you alive. It's generous to say that because it's worth more to be alive than it costs to have your appendix out. So yes, please charge me to take my appendix out, do it like a professional. And that's what I'm trying to talk about when I'm talking about uh, this idea of being generous. Thanks for listening. As always, we love your questions. Visit akimbo.link and press the appropriate button. If you like Akimbo, please share it with a few friends. We'll see you next time. Hey, it's Seth. Two quick announcements for you. First... The last session of the Alt-MBA to be held in 2018 is accepting applications right now in July. You can visit altmba.com to find out more. Also, last week, Moo.com started shipping the Focus Blank Book, a journal that I created with them that sort of teaches you how to juggle in whatever field you're in. Visit Moo.com for more information or the shortcut bit.ly slash juggle ship. Thanks for listening.